So what got you started on your first venture? Honestly, it was just that simple. I just didn't want to have a boss anymore. I was tired of answering to people I thought were dumber than me or they didn't have the, didn't have the ability to really lead and, and didn't know what they were doing. I worked at the guy, the people I worked for the hospital, great people, but they couldn't lead their way out of a wet paper bag in a rainstorm because they didn't know how to manage people to get the most out of them. I see in the military, one of the definitions of leadership in the military is to how, learn how to motivate others to accomplish the mission, right? Well, those people that I worked at the hospital, great people, fun, laugh, had a good time, but they didn't know how to motivate me to maximize my potential for them to maximize the effort that I was putting in at work. I had to do it on my own and I was getting pissed off. Like, why do I gotta be my own self-motivation? It's getting frustrating for me. I need to have some, my boss needs to be pushing me and da 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 and he's not. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you, and we will talk to you soon. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I sit and talk with Nick Valentine. He's a retired Army medic who specializes in mental health care. After retiring, he created Operation Phantom Support, which gives help to family members and service members alike. Nick is also a serial entrepreneur, creating combat boxes, and he's part of the Vetrepreneur Tribe and the Warrior Council. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, we're back again, and I'm here with Nick Valentine. He is a retired Army Sergeant First Class, right, Nick? Yeah, retired. So when did you join? Uh, September 11th, 1990. That's when I, well, that's, that's actually my enlistment date. I know it's crazy, but that was my enlistment date, yeah. Damn, where did, where did you, uh, where were you raised at? Here in Texas? Oh, no. God, no. Um, my father was in the U.S. Navy, so I was born at a naval station, and I moved all around the country until I was 19 years old. So I lived all over the country. I lived the East Coast, West Coast, Hawaii, uh, mid Midwest. So yeah, wherever my dad got stationed, then when I graduated high school, I went right into the Army. Oh, nice. Nice. So what was your what was it like growing up as a wandering child, to say the least? Well, to be honest with you, it was kind of tough because, you know, you never really knew how long you're going to be. You, never, you know, that's the one thing I tell people all the time is like when you're in a military family, you learn not to really hold on to friendships because you're going to leave in a few years and you're not going to have that. Like, I don't have any lifelong friends. Like, I don't have guys like in a lot of my buddies, they have friends they've known since they were, you know, gay hide or a grasshopper. And now they're not, you know, they're still have that. I don't have that. I have guys I met when I, you know, I, I have, I think I have one friend that I've, actually still stay in touch with a little bit but not very frequently uh from when i was maybe 12 or 13 until i was about 15 so but even like high school none of those people in high school were really that important to me because i knew i was going to leave eventually so i didn't really get attached to anybody my i mean i married my high school sweetheart my first marriage was to her and that just didn't work out unfortunately later on in life but um you know other than that you know i never had that so that's one of the challenges i a lot of military kids i think go through is that you don't really get connected to people like you do in a civilian kind of lifestyle where you're living in the same place all the time. You grew, 
Like my son, for instance, I've lived here in Copper Cove, Texas for 15 years, as long as I've lived anywhere in my entire life. And my son is going through school and going up the thing, and he's going to have those friends his whole life. But he's going to have something I never had, and he's going to have these kids he's going to know his whole life, basically. So they'll be really close, I'm assuming. But I don't have that, so I never knew what that was like. So. Dang. So growing up then, I take it family is pretty important to you? Oh, yeah. Me, me and my mother and my brother were really close growing up because my dad was gone out to sea a lot. So we grew up and moved together and did everything together. So I have a very close relationship with both my brother and my mother, even though my brother and I relationship has gone a little bit further apart as we've gotten older, just because he has kids, I have kids and we had a life, you know, so we, we've kind of, we still touch space and see each other all the time, but we don't, it's not like we were when we were kids though, you know what I mean? But it's still close. Uh, but my mother and I are really close. My father just passed away a few months ago. Um, so that's kind of been hard. But uh, And my mom and dad were married for 50 years, 51 years, so before my father passed away. So I've had the same continuity of family, you know, my whole life. So that's been great, that part. Oh, wow. That's right. Because I, I know we were talking about doing this earlier, and I think it was right around the same time uh, that your father had passed. And I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Coming to the age where you realize you're going to join the military and you had a lifelong father who was Navy, yep. was there any pressure on there for you to go Navy? Look, I'll give you the short and the sweet of that. Because here, when I was 13, 12, 13 years old, my father took me out on what they call a tiger cruise where they get to take their sons out on the ship and they go way out at sea and then they basically turn back around. You're basically out for like eight hours. Uh, yeah, I didn't do too well. So um, I was not a happy camper the whole trip. I was yakking the whole time, puking everywhere and laying down in my dad's cot, you know, in his bed, whatever, because I was just, it was not a good experience. So uh, I knew I was going to go in the military, though, because my father, I was more proud of my father than I was of anything in the world. So I wanted to make my father proud of me. So I knew I was going to go in the military, but I told my dad, I said, hey, man, I got to keep my feet on the ground. I am not getting no ship. So I'm going to join the army pop. And he's like, all right, you know, if that's what you want to do. So that's what I ended up doing. But it was just kind of comical because my brother went in the Navy later on. My brother went to the Navy for a little while, uh, but I did 20 years in the army. So he was proud of me. I think my father was very proud of me throughout my career because he was at all, he was there when I graduated basic training and he was there in his uniform. I had to salute him and then, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then he was very proud of me throughout my career. So, and that was really the point of me doing it was to make sure my dad knew how much I was, how proud I was of him and how proud I wanted him to be of me. So that's what we did it for. Oh, very, very nice. So what was your, um, what was your decision-making process when you decided to join? I mean, the nineties, we had just gotten, uh, out of Panama, stopped the Panama thing. Yeah. I was going to say, so did you go in, um, early or late 90? I was at, I was in, technically I was in before it started. So I came in like September in 90, uh, 91 is when, real, when Iraq, or no, actually it was, it was in the middle of it. I was, it, I came in right in the middle of the war when the war's getting, you know, when Desert Shield has started. And then I was in basic training at AIT when I graduated AIT, that's when Desert Storm started. And then when I got to my first duty assignment at Fort Ord, California, the unit I got assigned to was the unit that was at Just Cause in Panama. And they had just gotten back from Panama. And I, in January of 91 is when I showed up at January 5th of 1991 when I signed in Fort Ord, California, 7th Infantry Division. I was in a combat engineer battalion, 13th Engineer Combat Engineer Battalion. And uh, we were training right away. As soon as we got there, we all went into training because the war was going on. And our orders were, 
we were going to go to Baghdad once they, because our, in, in the 7th ID, Light Infantry, our whole thing was urban warfare. So we trained to fight in the city streets and the site night. That's how we trained. So our op tempo was, hey, when they hit Baghdad, when they actually get into Baghdad and they actually start setting up, the, we're going in because we're going to go in and clear the buildings and clear all those, you know, that was our thing. So we were all getting amped up. They're taking us to the Air Force base. And we're thinking, okay, we're getting, and then all of a sudden the war was over. And we're like, oh, damn, you know, all that training and all that stuff. And then we're not even going to get to go. Uh, so it was kind of like we were all hyped up to go. We're out on the airfield. And then the commander came in and said, hey, they just, the war's over. They shut us down. We're not going over there now. So we all got back on the buses and went back to Fort Ord. And then we saw what happened. But, yeah, it was kind of crazy. It was kind of that time of the that time of the world right there when Just Should That Storm was just ending. And, you know, and then it was a kind of a dead space for a long time, thank God. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, September 11th happened, and we went back into that stage. So, yeah. So were you a combat engineer by trade or? My, my first enlistment, I came in as an engineer that I got hurt in uh, ranger school and, and training. And they, re, they made me reclass. I tore my shoulder up really bad, had pins and screws put in all kinds of stuff. Oh. So I couldn't physically meet the criteria to be an engineer anymore because I couldn't carry my ruck and all that stuff. So I went through like two, a year and a half of rehab. And then they said, okay, you can re-enlist, but you got to change your MOS because you can't be you know, an engineer anymore because you can't meet the pullis, meaning you couldn't meet the physical requirements. So I chose medical field. So I got in the medical field, went to San Antonio for a couple, about seven, eight months going through AIT again as a specialist corporal. Uh, actually got promoted to E5 before I graduated AIT because I was still my old MOS. So I was still a 12 Bravo. So the points would just plummet and I had like 600 something points and the points dropped like 520. So I got promoted while I was in school. And then of course my instructors in school were like, you're not ready to be an E5 in the medical field because you just learned it. So I say, hey, it's a tough shit. You know what I'm saying? I'm, <laughs> it is what it is, bro. I'm a 12 Bravo right now until I graduate. So unless you graduate me early, you know, I'm a 12 Bravo now. So now I'm going to be a sergeant. So I went into my new MOS as a sergeant, which was some challenge because I was going. And that's the other thing, too. I went from an all-male unit, you know, hardcore infantry kind of combat arms guy. And then guess what? My first assignment, my first supervisor was a female NCO, and I never worked for a female soldier my whole career up to that point. So it was a challenge, you know, going into that. Not that I had any problem with it, but it was just, it was different. But that was, I mean? that was still in the time when we had, um, the Navy was just incorporating females on the ship. Um, you, we had nothing like we see with women in closer oh, no. to frontline positions than ever before. So... Coming from the infantry side, how much of a culture shock was that to medical is its own unique thing. I was a corpsman for 14 and a half years before I was medically retired. Um, we get away with some crazy shit, but we also do some crazy shit. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it was hard because my first assignment was the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. So I didn't uh, get assigned to a medical unit or, or a line unit. I got assigned to a research unit. I'm thinking, what the hell? And it was a unit that went on deployments, but they did survey studies and they, they basically evaluated how the, the deployment went, how the soldier doing in deployment. So you're collecting data basically. And I'm like, what? So, and like I said, my first supervisor was a female and she, she was amazing though. Don't get me wrong. She taught me a lot and really fast because she dumped a lot of stuff on me right away because I had to fall into a, like a semi sort of leadership position once I got to that unit, because there's only her two other E5s and then a whole bunch of E4s, right? So they really kind of threw me right into leadership right when I got there. But um, yeah, it was a challenge. I mean, the medical field is its own enemy. And then when I got to a line unit, I got to be a medic and then I got to go do other things. It was different, but uh, it was hard. I mean, it, and it wasn't hard because she was a female or because it was just because the, med the, the way people talk to each other, 
the way people interacted in the medical field versus an infantry unit or a combat arms unit is a completely different world, right? Like, you know, we went to parade rest when an NCO walked in the room. In the hospital, NCOs would walk by and just say, hey, and you'd be like, what? <laughs> I'm, not a parade, I'm not supposed to get parade rest. So you had to learn that, okay, it's a different world over here. It's just different. You know, you still respected the rank, but there was no jumping around and jumping through hoops like it used to be back in the day. So uh, for me, it was a challenge, but I got used to it pretty fast because they also treat you better. They treat you different. So it's a little bit easier to accept it because the treatment's different than getting there. Like, I didn't have to do push-ups anymore every time I made a mistake. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, they just talk to you and say, hey, don't do that again. You know, da, da. you're like, oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not in front of the rest of sweat dripping off my nose when I'm getting yelled at for being stupid or about something. But yeah, so it was different. But yeah, but it was fun. It was a lot of learning challenges. So yeah. So with um with your medical background, did you do, um were you a 68 whiskey or were you... I started as a 68 whiskey, but then they converted me to a 68 x-ray because my, from what the star major told me, my GT score and my ST score were so high, they had a shortage of mental health NCOs. They wanted to put me through school. So as soon as I graduated Bravo school, they sent me to x-ray school to be a, to be a mental health guy. Back then it was called 91 golf because back then it was 91 series. Now it's 68 series. But when I went to school originally, it was 91 Bravo, which was a medic, which is an army medic. And then 91 golf was a behavioral health specialist which meant they worked in mental health. They helped soldiers with counseling and stuff like that. And they were so short with that MOS, and they had such a high attrition rate in their school. Like literally the school that was in there while I was in school, the, 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 their course that was going on at the same time, had a 72% attrition rate, meaning 72% of people in the course failed out because it was too hard for them. Because they, were the, they barely met the minimum requirements to get in, so they were, they were struggling. So they said, hey, we're gonna send you over here, Corporal Sergeant Valentine, blah, blah. I said, all right. I mean, okay, it's going to give me six more months at Fort Sam. I'm cool with that. So I said, all right, six more months, I'll do it. So I went over there and I became, so I was a whiskey. Then I turned into a, a 68, 91 golf or 68 x-ray as they are now, which was mental health. So I had both backgrounds, the straight medic, and now I have the mental health background. And then that's kind of really what opened up a whole lot of doors for me because there, I could work in either lane. I could be in mental health or I could be a line medic for somebody. So it was really, it was, that was fun. Oh, nice, but, nice. So um, during the interwar years, uh, you know, mid nineties to 2000, were you um, deploying a lot as a mental health tech or were you guys just kind yeah, of going I base went, to base? I went to Bosnia three times. I went to Kuwait once. I went to, uh, we went to Somalia. So we were bounced all over because of the, the research stuff we were doing when I was in that, you know, for four years I was in a research unit. So we were bouncing from 94 to 98, 97, 98. I was all over the place because every time there was any kind of conflict anywhere, we went to. I had a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist, and I was the NCIC, and I had one soldier going. So there was a team of five, and we would go out to all these different locations and hand out surveys to soldiers, and they'd fill out these surveys while they were doing, like, the, you know, so they'd fill out our little five- or six-page survey real quick, turn it in, and then my job and the soldier's job is go back and input all that data and get it all ready for the doctors so they can do their analysis and, and break down, you know, the different things that are questions that we asked and they got to get all so it was, it was an interesting job, to be honest with you. I actually got published on two research papers because I'm because I was doing all that legwork and doing all the data input, input. So the doctors would add us to the we were authors on the papers with them, even though we we're just you know little sergeants or whatever. But it was pretty cool because it was pretty high honor to be on a, a the, all these guys are PhD level doctors, and they're putting me on their doctorate paperwork. And I'm like, holy crap! Wow. So that was cool. so I'm like, thanks, you know what I mean? So yeah, so it was pretty cool, but. Um, so you can say but you're yeah, a, quite a bit. So you can say you're a published scientist. I am published. Yes, I am a published, and I wouldn't say science. I would say I'm a published soldier. There you go. 
that's kind of what I was plugging the data in for him. And I did a lot of data and graphs and all this stuff. I made it everything look pretty for him. They put all the work in and did all the write up, but I did it, I made it where they flicked her, flicked her, and it, and it had looked pretty for him. So that's what they liked. That's what I think they gave credit. So one thing I forgot to ask so, you uh, yeah. earlier on, having a father who was military and a mother who was a military spouse, going to boot camp with the army during what seems to have, none of us would have known Desert Storm would have turned out the way it did. Knowing that that was going on, how did how did they feel? How, did you talk to your dad at all about? Yeah. Um, of course, you know, mothers are always worried about their sons, no matter what's going on, because they're their kids. But my father was confident because even through high school and stuff, I was kind of the leader of my group of kids. I was the captain of the football team, captain of the baseball team. So I kind of already kind of, took a role where I was kind of the lead guy in the group. Uh, and he wasn't very concerned about anything for me because he knew this army was going to train me the right way and I was going to get trained to do whatever my job was going to be to do if we did go to combat. Uh, but I'd say my mother wasn't happy, but I, what mother is, you know, about any of They're all proud of their kids, but they're not happy about the situation their kids are put in that they have to deal with, you know what I mean? So it was a challenge from that from that perspective, I guess. But... From my father's point of view, I think he was just so proud of me because I went to the military like he did. I was following in his footsteps and he, because he was in the Vietnam era, you know, and he was in the Navy during Vietnam. And uh, he knew what it was like to be in the war tempo, kind of op tempo, kind of up still like that. So he knew what it was going to be like for me going in. And when I told him, hey, dad, I'm getting ready. We're getting ready to board up. We're getting ready to get on the bus and go down to Flackland, to the Air Force Base to fly out to Iraq. And he's like, all right, well, be careful, son. You know, and he said, I love you. Just be careful. And I said, your mom's like, yep, yes, sir. So, it, you know, I mean, my father didn't get all hyped up. He's like, just, be, you know, do your job, do what you're supposed to do and come home. And I'm like, yes, sir. So, and then we didn't go, of course. But the point is, I was ready to go and he was ready for to let me. But then when I went to when I went to Bosnia those three times, you know, my mom was worried, of course. My dad's like, just put your head down, do your job. You know what I'm saying? And get home to us. I'm like, all right. So that's what we did. And then when I went to Iraq and Afghanistan, same thing. You know, this time now I'm a medic, though. I'm running an aid station. I'm doing all those things. And I'm actually out on the line. And now, you know, action is a little bit more... How do you like to stay relevant because now people are shooting at you you're shooting at people you know people are bitten shot you're doing the medic stuff you know you're pulling things in calling in medevacs all that stuff so it was a lot different the afghanistan and iraq time than i thought it was going to be um but it, it worked out you know we a lot of people came through but you know training is training and it, it kind of jumps in and when you run an aid station in a very high up tempo kind of place where a lot of injury guys are coming in and, and stuff it makes it a lot a lot more satisfying that your actual training's coming to fruition and you can actually see what you've been trained to do. You can actually put it to work. And that, and I think as a soldier, as a sailor, as whatever um, career path you're in, if you're a, a war fighter and then obviously you actually engage in what you're training and you actually see the outcome of your training and it actually works, it's pretty satisfying to know that, you know, you became that type of soldier, exactly. sailor, Marine or whatever, my Air Force, flight guy, whatever. So, yeah. yeah, definitely on that. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit here now. Uh, 11 years to the day after you joined. Um, I don't know exactly where you're at. You were at at this point in time in your career, but I'm assuming it was early in the morning. You, someone says something's happened. Where were you at and what was your reaction to nine 11 happening? I, I can actually, I can, t I was actually at that time I was a B knock instructor. So I was teaching E fives, how to become better to be get, get ready to become an E six, E seven. So I was in the NCO Academy. I was a B knock instructor. So I was a small group leader. We were actually at lunch 
And me and a buddy of mine were in my car. We're driving back. We were in San Antonio Station at Fort Sam Houston. We are in San Antonio. And we were coming back from lunch. And we heard it on the radio. So we immediately pulled over and went into this restaurant that had, we knew had TVs and stuff. We went to look at the TV and what the hell's going on. And we watched it on TV. And me and him were sitting there freaking out. So we're like, oh, shit, let's just get in the car and get back to the unit. Maybe we can get in there and we can volunteer to deploy. Or we can just, so we just hauled ass back. Because our sergeant major at the time that was in charge of the NCO Academy was an ex-Special Forces guy. He was F-tabbed and all that stuff, all that Green Beret, all that stuff. So we got back to him and was like, hey, Sergeant Major, can we get can we get assigned? Can you get us attached to somewhere where we get deployed to go fight? You know, we want to go support what we're doing. He's like, nope, your mission's here, you're doing this. And we're like, oh, shit, okay. So we just kept going and then we did it. And then, you know, but I, I remember it very vividly because we heard it on the radio and we actually pulled over into a, went to a restaurant and jumped out and then, and then went in there to watch the news and and of course, we got back to our students that afternoon after lunch, and the students came back, and they're all for everybody's freaking out. Like, what are we gonna do? I said, hey, I'm sure, all of us are gonna get called. Some of you guys might get called out of here to go back to your unit right now because your unit's probably gonna up tempo and go. All you guys from Bragg and Hood and, that are the combat faces, you guys might get called to get out of here. So we got to get ready for that. So that was kind of where I was at the time, and I didn't I didn't get to deploy until 2004. So it was a while for me because I just kept getting bounced around to different jobs. So. Did, did you, uh, after 9-11, were you able to get back into the mental health side or did they keep you on the, uh, the no, medic kept, side? For instance, when I went to Afghanistan, I was actually in the NCIC of Division Mental Health at 25th ID out of Hawaii because I got stationed in Hawaii. When I left Fort Sam, the NCO Academy and all that stuff, my next duty assignment was Schofield Barrett, Hawaii. The minute we landed, they said, hey, we're going to put you in this job because I, initially I was supposed to go be the 8th Station Sergeant, da da they said, no, you're the senior guy here. You're an E7 now, so we're going to put you over, and you're going to be in charge of the Division Mental Health Office. I said, all right. So I went over there. So I was in charge of all the mental health for the whole 25th ID, which is, you know, a big, big battalion or big division of soldiers. Um, and they said, hey, we're deploying to Afghanistan in three months, so get your shit unpacked, store it, whatever, put it in storage, whatever, because we're leaving. So I was on the island for three months, and then we, then we went to Iraq, or Afghanistan, excuse me. And then I set up. Here's the thing. I set up the AIDS uh, – the mental health stuff, uh, they took me and put me down at Salerno, which is a fire uh, forward operating base Salerno, which is on the eastern, the, 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 the eastern border of Afghanistan near Pakistan, right? So we're down there and we're setting up. I got me and my soldier that I had with me because when you go mental health and you deploy, uh, sometimes you have a doctor, sometimes you don't with you. But when you set up my job now, like for instance, if you as a soldier came into my clinic and you have PTSD or whatever, we would sit down and talk to you, get you off, and then I would call the doc. Hey, doc, you need to get out here for an appointment. We got a point. He would he would get out here on the helicopter, whatever. But in the midst of setting all that up, my company commander of the company that I was in that I was assigned to, you know what I'm saying? He said, hey, Sergeant Valentine, I, I need you to do something for me. I said, what's that, sir? He said, I need you to take over and be the first arm down here because our first arm is going to stay up where he is, and you're going to run the aid station down here. I said, okay, sir, I can do that. So I called my boss, which is a major. I said, hey, sir, I've looked, they're asking me to do this, this, and this. Is that okay for you? Is it you're going to be okay for me doing that? Plus running the mental health. He said, can you handle both? I said, yeah, I can handle both because I got a great soldier down here with me. He can handle a lot of it. And then if he needs help, he can come get with me. So that's what happened. I ended up turning up and stand. Now I'm standing up the aid station to take care of the medevacs and the injuries on top of running the, the, the mental health part of it. But luckily, I had a great soldier time. He turned out to be one of my closest friends now. And because uh, he, he was about, he was a few years younger than me, but he was a, a more, I like to call him a more senior soldier because he came in with a college degree and he came in as a PFC. So he already, he already had some intelligence and maturity. So he wasn't a basic little private. He was, you know, a little bit more advanced. Plus he was a really smart kid and he was just really sharp at what he did. He was really good at his job. So it really made it a lot easier for me. But then I ran the aid station. And then of course, cause I'm running the aid station, 
all the units out there when they were, they were short medics, they would call us, hey, we need a backfill for a medic. Our medic just went on leave or he's injured or whatever. So I would have to fill them with medics that I had in the aid station. And then of course, while I was there, seventh group was in theater. So was, so there aren't the Rangers and all these guys, special op guys. So when they needed somebody though, they wouldn't take just Joe Snuffy soldier. They wanted a senior level medic. So they, hey, Sergeant Valentine, we want you to come out. We're going to, group needs another medic because our medic's got, he's out on leave or he's injured or whatever. So I would fly out. They said they'd send a helicopter to the aid station, pick me up and fly me out to their, wherever they were. And I would sit with them for a couple of weeks and be their extra medic and run around doing missions with the special forces guys, you know, doing clearing and whatever they're doing. And they, and they did some wild shit. They did some wild stuff over there, man. And it, it was nuts. Some of the stuff we did over there with seventh group, they were, they were nuts. Those guys are crazy. <laughs> and they would just go into anything. They, they, they were looking for fights. They, they, they're walking around looking for action. So it's kind of crazy, but yeah. So do you remember your uh, your first um, engagement? Yep. You never forget your first one. Uh, I was out with seventh group. Was out, I was out with group, and we were we were going into a village to find to basically gather intel. But when we got in there, uh, one of the guy, one of the master sergeants, saw something that didn't look right to him. So he, he's on the he's on the radio with all this stuff. Hey, hey, hey! You know, eyes right, eyes right. So we're all looking right. And like 10 Taliban dudes just came running out of this guy, just jumped out of his back of his pickup truck and just started lighting up the whole side section of where we were, like bullets are going everywhere. So we all get back, re, re, you know, regroup, we regroup, we all get online and then boom. Cause they put me through training. Like when I got to the site initially, I was going through every day, I was going through a couple hours of how to maneuver with them. Like when they, how to touch them, what the touch meant, what I was with. So they touched me on the right shoulder, I went which way. If they touched me on the left shoulder, they touched me on the head, I went a certain way. So I knew all their hands and arm signals. So they're tapping and we roll. We know what I roll twice. And I get up, I cry, I just start shooting. You know, so when that happened, you know, the guys get involved, you know, they're bullfighting. And one of the guys got hit. So, of course, immediately I'm the medic. So I got to run over there, grab him, drag him out, patch him up, make sure he's, you know, sustainable that he can maintain. But, like, of course, these guys are going to step. So he gets hit and I get over there to him. He's like, I'm all right, doctor. I said, No, you're not. You're blood pouring. He got hit right in the shoulder. So you got to, he said, Patch it up. So I get up. I throw a pressure direction on, stab it under his armpit. I said, all right, it, it, I got maneuvered, but you, he said, I'm all right. He, it, I said, I'm just, all he did, he put the gun left-handed now. He put the gun right on the the, on the, the pressure dressing to keep pressure on it. It kept shooting. Um, he's like, don't worry about the medevac. Just, we'll get out of this and we'll finish this and we'll call out. I said, all right, all right, shit, okay. So I got back to get back online and I kept going. So, yeah, I'll never forget those guys, man. Those guys were something else. And, and. They were just warriors, you know. They were just tough as hard, hard as woodpecker lips. You know what I'm saying? They were just tough. So, uh, but I'll never forget those those two or three engagements. Those guys are just something that never leaves your mind. You know what I mean? And plus, you know, a lot of people got hurt. You know what I mean? And, and as the medic, you know this as a corpsman. After a fight, after the firefight, everybody's you know it's done. Guess what? Now, I as the medic got to walk around and check all the bodies to make sure if they're dead or they're, you know what they. I have to basically triage everybody, right? Yep, dead. Yep, dead. Oh, not dead yet, but he's going to die because we're not going to medevac him. And some of these special forces guys, when I say they're not dead, they walk up like they're going to double. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He'll die. He'll die on his own. You don't got to shoot him again. <laughs> he's lost enough blood. So I'm like, don't waste the bullets. And then some of them, of course, we're hoping they are alive so we can get some intel. They were a lot, you know, some of them were wounded enough where they just wounded. So I could patch him up and we can bring him back to the thing and then they can interrogate him and try to get information from him. Uh, so that's always a fun part of being a medic too, is that shit job you got to do after the firefight, you got to go check the enemy out to make sure who's alive, who's dead. And then of course we got civilians that are in the region that got hit. Like I had two little kids that got hit when we were in one fight. 
one of them, it took off a leg, and the other the bullet actually literally ripped the leg off. And then the other one was, you know, the kid got shot in the, in the torso, right in the, underneath his rib cage. You know what I'm saying? So it's luckily it was an in and out. It exited, so it wasn't that bad. It was just basically packed up, sewed up, and he was okay. But other kid lost his leg. So you know, you have things in your mind that never go away. It's kind of spooky that way, but it's just the way it goes. And yeah, yeah, and you know, thanks for bringing up the uh, fact that we do treat the enemy. I think a lot of people think that we just only take care of our own forces. Our responsibility is anybody on the battlefield that's injured. Now, we have to triage them and put them in priorities. I'm not saying I don't treat my guys first. But when my guys are treated and everybody, then I got to go to the enemy and I got to make sure because there might be somebody alive that we can interrogate or we can use as a a leverage for us. So we we have an obligation. Plus, us as medics, as medical people, have that. That's part of who we are, right? That oath that we take that. So... I will make sure I get, if I can save his life, I will. You know what I mean? Even if it's the enemy. Because like I, I tell people all the time, he might be the enemy because we're at war, but if we weren't at war, this might be a guy I have a beer with and I just chill and I just get to know him. You know what I mean? I don't know, but why treat him any different? Now he's injured. He can't take his weapons away. He can't do shit. You know, we're going to secure him. And, you know, Corkin, you're with special forces, guys. They're a little different how they handle that situation. And they have different rules than we do in the normal army or the normal military because they have different rules. So I had to get accustomed to those rules. So there's sometimes I just had to walk, like when the, if the master aren't aware, they say, hey, just walk away, doc. All right, I just walked away. And then they handle whatever they want to handle. But I'm like, all right. But I want to know that I was trying to, they're like, you're good, doc. I'm like, all right, simply <laughs> walk away. You know what I mean? That's the way it goes. Yeah. Um, I think there was a pretty famous incident of that special forces mentality that happened in the last few years that made the news. But, um, so did you guys, were you guys like a role one, a role two at your, where you were working before you went out with, with group at your aid station? Well, we were the key, we were the major medevac thing between us and Bagram, which was the main hub where the hospital was the main hospital because we actually built on our hospital. So we were, we were a, a hub that everybody came to and they like, even like injured, like when a civilian, like we used to get a lot of our Afghanistan nationals that would, because these idiots would like to start a fire in their house, they'd use gasoline and they would blow. And then a kid would come into our aid station. He, they would drive up in their car to the, the door of our fob and be like, Hey, our kid got hurt. And they bring him to me. And this kid is like three quarters of his body is covered in third degree burns. Cause Ooh. dad had poured gas on a fire in the house and lit it and then lit it up and it blew up in the house and caught everybody on fire. Now, I mean, yeah, you would think people that lived in this nation and in this in this environment would know how to take care of themselves better, but evidently not. So yeah, I mean it was it was kind of crazy. So you went to Iraq after you went to Afghanistan. Yeah, I went later. Yeah. And two thousand four, from what I remember, Afghanistan wasn't big on the uh, whole IED thing yet. Not as big as Iraq because Iraq had more paved roads and more travel. And see, in Afghanistan, it's mostly dirt roads and stuff. So. And there's not really that many paved roads, so there was no you couldn't really ID because you didn't. We as guys in our trucks, we could go that way or this way. We didn't follow a road, you know. What I mean, we went a right. direction. Where in Iraq, you stayed on the roads because there were paved roads and you had cities and you had more structure. Afghanistan's a big ass open desert, you know what I'm saying? So there were IDs in Afghanistan because we got guys who got hit in Afghanistan too, but not as dramatic as Iraq was at the time. And even like when I was in Afghanistan, you'd watch the news and they were talking about Iraq, not Afghanistan. You know what I mean? They were talking about Iraq because it was. There's more intensity there, more injuries happen, and more more deaths because the fighting was a little bit more intense there. Because again, it's in a it's in a it's in an urban environment, not a, a desert, so it's harder to get to the fight. So when you guys came home um, after that deployment, 
How long were you back before you took off to Iraq? A year and a half. Then I went to Iraq. Okay, so you had some time. Yeah. Well, I PCS because see, as soon as we got back to Hawaii, my position that they put me in that was so important, the Army took it away. So they called me and said, "Hey, we're putting, we're sending you on orders to Fort Hood." And I'm like, "What? I just, I, I've only been on the island for six months. Is it tough?" I said, "As long as that." And then I'm like, "Well, you better give me credit for a whole long tour for overseas because I'm not leaving until I get my credit because I'm over here." All right, we'll give you credit. So I got credit for a long overseas tour, and then they PCS me back to Fort Hood. And then as soon as I got to Fort Hood, six months later, I went to Iraq. So, so now from the Iraq perspective and the Afghanistan perspective, mm-hmm. um, how much of a culture shock or difference was it being now in an urban, like we were saying earlier, urbanized, yep. more? I mean, I traveled MSR Mobile every single day for six months. And that looks a lot like areas between San Antonio and Austin yep. on 35. Yep. Uh, how was that relative to being in Afghanistan, which like you basically, you said was basically like a giant dirt road in mud huts everywhere. I, I'll be honest with you. The anxiety level was up a lot higher because you had to be more alert to everything around you now because every, because I was in Missoula. So when I was in Iraq, I was based out of Missoula. Even though I flew all over the country, I went to Spiker, I went to everywhere else. But I was based out of Missoula, which was a very hot bed anyway, because there was a lot of that shit was flooding up north and everybody was so we had a lot of trauma. And like guys would walk up to our gate and throw grenades over the roof over the wall. And there's all of a sudden boom and a grenade would go off. You might be walking to go to the gym or whatever, and all of a sudden boom, a grenade goes off. So it was a much different because I was actually, the thing I was worried most about, because I was a first sergeant at the time, then now I was a first sergeant, and I'm in charge of soldiers, and I've got them all over the country because of the mental health part of it. And now I'm running a combat, I'm the first sergeant of a combat stress control hospital. So I had guys stationed all over the theater with doctors that are taking care of the soldiers in theater that have combat stress or having mental health problems or issues. So my biggest concern was travel, because see, travel in Iraq was much more dangerous than travel in Afghanistan. Because Afghanistan, the primary way of travel was the ring flights. You got on a helicopter and you went on a ring flight. Well, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, they wanted you to get in convoys and drive. And so one of my biggest things that my commander was like, why are we doing that and not just get on the ring flights? Why are we putting our guys in vehicles and driving when we could put them in a helicopter and they could fly? Yeah, it's less, there's less chance, it's a little bit more scheduling, but we can do it and our guys are safer because we don't hear about any helicopters getting shot out of the sky, but we hear about IEDs hitting trucks and van. What are we doing? So... There was a little bit more intensity as, as in a leadership position in Iraq just because the op temple was much different as far as the threat. There was a threat in Afghanistan, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't like the threat in Iraq because guys could be hiding in a building right across the street from your fob or right across the street from your, your, your tow unit where you're at. Or when you get in a truck and get ready to leave, you go right out the door, they could be waiting for you. Versus Afghanistan, you leave the fob and you can see for miles and miles around you because there's nothing out there. It's all open. They can't sneak up on you. They can't get close. Where in Iraq, they could be living right outside your gate door and you don't know it. You know what I mean? So you yeah. don't know. So that was the difference, I think, from the leadership perspective that it was much, and me, for me, it's personally because I was a first time. So now I'm responsible for all my soldiers. And I'm freaking like, I'm telling all my guys, you're not getting on a truck. You're going to get on a ring flight. Just wait for a ring flight. Get a ring flight. You know what I'm saying? You're not allowed, you're not allowed to get on a convoy unless it's the only means necessary to get to the next location where you got to get to. And then, and then even then, you had to call and get approval from me to get on there, <laughs> get in the convoy. Because I'm not calling, I'm not writing a letter to your mom and dad because you were in a convoy and got hit by ID. Um, so it was more challenging for sure. Uh, but Iraq also had 
there was value there too in what you can learn from the country and what you can learn from what's going on to those people because those people also communicated with you easier. A lot of them could speak partial English and they can communicate. Where in Afghanistan, they, you, unless you talk their language, you weren't communicating at all with them. Where in Iraq, some of the people could kind of halfway get along and you can have a conversation sometimes. So you got to know the people there. And like I would tell people all the time, I said, not everybody in Iraq is a bad person. You know what I'm saying? They're, they had bad leadership, they had bad things happen, they got terrorists over there, but not everybody over there is a terrorist. You know what I'm saying? They're, there's people that live like here that are just normal people trying to live their lives and these people are overrunning them. So. You know, there's a purpose to uh, there was a purpose to be in Iraq. I think that was that was very important. So. so now, it seems like you were doing a lot more mental health over there, and I know we talk about mental health a lot, and yeah. from the military's per- perspective. But what was frontline mental health? Being a mental health professional, what was that like? Well, the biggest thing for us was after a conflict, we would go and debrief the unit. And we would try to give them insight into what might be happening to them here in the future because of what just happened to them in that gunfight or that whatever they were in or that explosion where your party got shot or hurt or whatever and you saw it or you were impacted by it. So we would kind of come in there and kind of, I don't, the, the right words here, it's like decompress it, like kind of say, hey, look, we're here for you. If you need us, you can come over and talk to us. No one's going to judge you. Not going to go, it doesn't have to go on your record. You can just come in and talk to us. We're not going to put anything on paper, so it's not going to follow you anywhere. We just want to be here for you so we can make sure you can get through what that situation just happened and we can show you the right ways to manage the feelings that you're going to get. So that was kind of our output that we said, hey, we had groups, open groups that people could come to and just sit down and have coffee and donuts or whatever. We would just talk. Now, no one would judge each other in there. So we, we were trying to really kind of get that mystique that because you come to mental health, it's going to follow you and track your career. And all. No, we won't even put it on paper that you were here. We won't even write it down because we just want to talk to you to make sure you're okay. You can do all this when you get back to the rear and you're in the States and you're whatever, and then you can go see doctors and then you should get it documented because it's gonna, if it's going to affect you the rest of your life, you need to make sure the VA is going to compensate you and da, da, da. So you do want to have it on paper that you were seen. But while we're in theater, just come and talk to us so we can talk to you. No one's going to write your name down. No one's going to say you were here. We just want to make sure you're okay. And that's kind of how we approached it. Now, the medical side of it, like my staff, doctors, they weren't happy about all that, but I told them, I don't care if you're happy or not. Right now, our job is to make sure these guys are combat mission ready, not documenting things to hurt their potentially hurt their career. They think it's going to hurt. It's not going to hurt, but they potentially think it's going to hurt their career. We can't have them thinking like that when they're outside the wire. They got to be focused that they're outside the wire. They're taking care of their troops. They're going to get back in the wire, and then we can talk. But if we make them feel like it's going to impact their career, they might not go out and do the right job. They might get their guys killed because they're they're sidetracking their mind somewhere else. Our job is to make sure their mind's clear and they can focus. So let's just tell them to come talk to us and need to talk. If they don't want to come talk, don't come talk. But we're here if you need us. And that's kind of how we approach. Plus, we had dogs. We got approved. I got a, I got, we were the first combat stress control unit in theater of operation that got approved to have working dogs, therapy dogs with our unit. Oh, wow. Because dogs weren't even allowed. You weren't allowed to have pets while you were in Iraq or Afghanistan. But I got it. I went all the way up to I went all the way up to the CG, the, the core commander and said, hey, this is therapeutic value. My soldiers will take care of the animal. We'll get, and they'll be legitimate therapy dogs. We'll get them from the states. I got a guy in New York that's willing to send me two dogs right now, and we'll get. Just got to pay for them, get them over here. And then the colonel's like, you know what? Or the general's like, all right. He signed the paperwork. Boom. And then all of a sudden, bam! I had two dogs. So now we had the dogs with us. They said service dogs on the side. So when we went to Chow, where we're walking, up, every soldier in there that wanted, they wanted to come over. And then guess what? If you want to come see the dog, he's over here in our building. Just come on by, and have a sit down. And they would sit with that dog in his lap. They'd be petting that dog, and they would just let it out, man. It would come out like verbal diarrhea. It would just flow. 
that dog made people so comfortable because he would just lay in their lap, put his head down, and you just petted him. And then the dog would get up and sniff you or do whatever, make you feel. And then if you started getting your angst, like when he would, they were telling stories, this is the greatest thing I ever seen, man. When these guys would tell stories and you could tell their anxiety was getting up or they were getting angry, the dog would sit up and then put their head on their shoulder or put their head on their chest. And the dog, then the guy would focus back on the dog and calm down. And the guy would sit back in his chair and calm down after he was getting all hyped up. The dog knew it could sense it. And he would just sit up and do something to the person and make the person play, pay attention to the dog. And then the guy would calm back down. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I, I didn't really think the value of dogs were that important until I saw that physically in a room one day with a guy. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> that dog just sensed that this guy was getting angry and calmed him down. And he did. He just put it. And, and literally, the dog sat up and put his head like right here. Like laid his face right here. And then the guy started petting him. And then he reached his other end around him to pet him some more. And then he just sat back in his chair and was just caressing his dog. And he calmed down. And then he was like, I'm sorry I got upset. And he's like, no, it's good. You're good. You know what I'm saying? You're good. So for us in the, in the theater, when you're running combat stress control, it's more about keeping the combat power straight, but also being there to listen to them if they need to listen to them and not judge them. You know, just hear them out. And that's the most important thing. So when you came home after Iraq, um, that was what, 2007, eight? eight? 2008, yep. How... How was your personal transition back at that point in time? Well, for me, it was tough because I was dealing with PTSD from Afghanistan because of all the stuff that happened to me over there. So I was dealing with PTSD a little bit. But then, of course, I had personal issues with my but my ex-wife, at the, well, my current wife at the time, but we were having problems because she wasn't being um, as faithful as she should have been while I was deployed, uh, to leave it at a, at a natural, easy nature. And then she was in the Army. And then as soon as I got back, a couple months later, she deployed to Iraq. Oh. And then I was home with our daughter, and my daughter was like three, two or three years old. And my parents actually came down from Maryland, and they, they came to Texas to live with me because they were like, well, Chris is going to, and my ex-wife's going to deploy. We need to be there to help you with, her, you know, our granddaughter. I said, okay. So they came and stayed with me. Um, thank God, because I don't know how well I would have done because it was hard for me. I wasn't sleeping much. I still don't sleep that much. But um I don't like going to sleep. You know, I'm one of those veterans. I don't complain about my situation. I don't, you know, I've had suicidal ideations. I've had all that stuff. But um, the hardest thing for me has been not wanting to sleep because I don't want to go through those nightmares. I don't want to go through those things. So it's like I'm almost afraid to go to sleep, so to speak. It's like I tell people. Um, and it's not because I don't want to sleep because I love to sleep. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I can fall asleep anywhere, man. But I just don't want to fall asleep because I know what happens when I fall asleep. And my wife, my current wife, and I've been, we've been there for 10 years now, but um, she's amazing. She's like my rock because she can sense me at night when I'm having a bad dream. And then she just comes over slowly and kind of, she doesn't come over in a rush. She comes over really slow and she'll just start rubbing my back or rubbing the back of my head or whatever. And, and I'll wake up or I'll come kind of, and then she'll just hold me. And then I feel better and then I can rest. So, I'm saying, so it's just a matter of, well, I tell a lot of veterans out there that, you know, you got to find the right human being that could be in your life that can be there for you and not judge you for what happened to you over there or not judge you for what you had to do over there. And if you find that person, you can get through this without having to worry about it. Like I think of, I, I tell people all the time, I literally think about suicide probably twice, two, three times a day. And I don't do it because I want to kill myself. I do it because it's a, it's a, it's an end result for me that can fix problems. Right. I know it's not the right answer. I know it's not the right thing to do, but for that few minutes, I'm like, damn, if I was dead, I wouldn't have to worry about none of this shit. You know what I mean? Like it would be gone. But then I wouldn't see my kids anymore, my wife anymore. So I'm not going to do it. But I feel it's not, it's okay to think about killing yourself. It's just not okay to do it because you have other things you got in your life that are just as important as what you're thinking about. Yeah. You just no. got to prioritize everything. So, huh. so 
as someone who worked in the mental health world mm-hmm. and then um, coming home and having these issues, did it affect the way you looked at your job? Like, why can I help these guys, but I'm going through this stuff on my own? It, 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 I would say this, it almost helped me amplify the position I was in for my job because knowing how to live with it, like talking about suicide for me, wasn't as bad for me because I think about it, right? So I understand what they're probably thinking because I'm like them. I think just I think about killing myself. All I had gun a loaded gun in my mouth three or four times in my life. You know what I mean? Like since I got back, I understand it. So that's why I think it connects me more to people that think about it because I can relate to it. I can say, shit, I hear you. I, I fucking do the same shit. You know what I'm saying? I hear you. But you have me now. We can talk now. We can we can work through this together. And we can get through. This. And we're, I'm not going to judge you because I feel the same way you do. I want to kill myself sometimes too. And I've had a gun in my mouth, like trigger, hammer cocked, ready to go. And then I just said, what am I doing? You know what I mean? I pulled it out. I didn't do it. But I think it gave me a better insight to work with guys that feel that way because I understand the feelings because I feel them all the time too. And I'm I'm okay talking about it. And I think that's the other part. When you find a person who's okay talking about their feelings and their thoughts, it makes it easier for other people who aren't comfortable to get comfortable to talk about it because they can see, hey, well, shit, if he's going to talk about it, I can talk about it too. Like I told them, I don't care what you're thinking. Tell me, I don't care what you want to tell me because I'm not going to judge you because I am telling you, I probably felt the same thing. And if it's not the exact same thing, it was probably pretty close. So it relates, you know? No, that totally makes sense. So on that note, um, I don't know whether you came in with the intention of only doing 20 years or if you thought oh, no. for yeah, life. 20 years, 20 years I was done, so Okay, so I was going to ask you, what was your, what was that moment that you said it's time to hang up the uniform? Honestly, it came from my father, uh, because what my father told me was this. He said, you're going to learn so many skills and have so much experience and have so much knowledge and so much leadership ability. The Army or the military, once you hit 20 years, because of the, the retirement system that the military has, half of your paycheck is yours for life once you hit 20 years. So that means from the day after 20 years, you're working for half your pay because the other half, you've already got it forever, whether you're in the army or not. So you've basically cut your pay in half. And I'm telling you right now, the army ain't gonna give you a bonus when you hit 20 years to keep you in, right? So he said, just get out, you'll find a good job or you'll start a career, you'll do something you wanna do and you can start a new part of your life and you'll, you'll still be young enough because you only, at that time I was only 39 when I retired after 20 years, I was only 39 years old. I wasn't even 40 years old yet. So. I had a lot of time to get things ready to get through my life, right? So I took my dad's words and I said, he did the same thing. He got out of 20 years, you know what I'm saying? Because he said, why? And then he was making hundreds of thousands of dollars working for companies that were helping the military doing contract work and all stuff. And then I got into working for a hospital. I was making almost $100,000 a year working for a hospital. But I just didn't like it. So I quit and started a nonprofit and started doing my own thing because I wanted to be my own boss. I was tired of taking, telling people, telling me what to do all the time. So I said, God, I'm going to be my own boss. So I did my own thing. <laughs> No, I hear you on that. I mean, I wish I could have done my 20. Unfortunately, my situation was something I had no control over. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of guys in med boards, they get screwed because they got like, they were going to try to med board me at at 18 and a half years. I said, no, you're not because I got a year and a half until I retire. You're not even, because I said, I'll put in so many damn letters and slow this shit down so bad. You guys will be mad at me. So just leave it alone and let me go. Let me retire at 20 years and I'll get out of your hair. They're like, all right. So just let me, they just, they move me to another unit. They actually moved me to the WTU to be a platoon sergeant, which is the Wounded Warrior Transition Unit in the Army. And they moved me to a platoon that had 72 guys with combat Purple Hearts, right? So they were all Purple Heart wounded. 
I was their platoon sergeant to help them go through their med board process or whatever. I was there to help them, but I was in the WTU anyway, so it was kind of funny. But I just got to retire out of there, though. Yeah. So were you down here in San Antonio for the WTU? No, Fort Sam, Fort Hood. I've been at Fort Hood since 2005. Oh, okay, okay. So Fort Hood is kind of infamous with some mental health issues from what I've heard. Yeah. Do you know why that is? You know, to be, to be bluntly honest with you, I don't think it's an impact of the base itself. I think it's an impact of the people that are assigned to this base based on their MOS or their job specialty, right? Because we get a lot of tankers, a lot of armor guys, some infantry guys, a lot of um, support type of job. And I've lived here for 15 years now, or 16 years, and as long as I lived anywhere my entire life. And, and that whole Vanessa Guillen thing happened and all that kind of stuff. But like I tell people, listen, the military itself is just a snapshot of society, meaning there's a percentage of people that are in the army that are criminal-based mindsets. There are people in the army that, do, that are sexual offenders. There's people in the army, that, in the military that do this. We are just a snapshot. So the 100,000 people that live in Killeen, 40-something thousand of them are, from, are, live on the, are on the base, right? That's that number. So the Killeen's population is over 100,000, but 40-something thousand of it is the active duty soldiers on the Fort Hood. That's what counts for their population. So if you just take a screenshot, a snapshot of that society and go, okay, 10% of those people, which out of 100,000 people is 10,000 people, right? 10,000 people in that group are just shitty human beings. They're just bad people. They're corrupt. They're, they're evil. They're, they're criminal, whatever. Same thing in the Army. That 40,000 soldiers, 4,000 plus of those soldiers that are on that base right now, they're dirtbags because they came in the Army because they were in a gang and they wanted to get trained out of these. Or they came in the Army, they were drug dealers, whatever they were doing. But they did it because they were trying to move ever. But the point is, that's still who they are. Like this guy who killed Vanessa Guillen. And I listen, Vanessa was a good soldier, and I heard a lot about everything. But it wasn't the chain of command's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. This guy was a wackadoodle who had a crush on this girl, evidently, took it to the extreme, and did this on his own. It's not like a, any. if I was a first arm, because, you know, they did a 15-6 investigation, right? So the Army went in and behind us said, hey, did she file any kind of sexual harassment or any, any official stuff? But she didn't. From what I was told, she didn't file anything official. And she might have said something to somebody, or said that to her mom or dad or whoever. And I'm not defending what happened. I think the military should have done a better job with the whole situation. But my point is, the military is just a snapshot of society. So there's going to be rotten apples in the in the barrel. And Fort Hood, unfortunately, just seems to have a lot of those those a lot of those soldiers end up here. And because we're so isolated in the middle of Central Texas. It amplifies because also you got to remember Fort Hood makes three billion dollars a year for the state of Texas. How much? Between employment, three billion. Wow. So that's why Fort Hood is so important too, because it's such a huge entity in this in a state, right? But that means soldiers come in. We have thirty-eight to forty thousand soldiers on this base every at any time during the year. So we're either the largest or the second largest base in the military between Fort Bragg and Fort Hood. We're one of the two largest bases in the country with people and population, and we are as far as as far as uh, space, territory, Fort Hood is the largest military base because we got because we do all the tanks, right? So there's so many acres of land here for Fort Hood, it's crazy. But I tell people all the time, I said, listen, remember that the military is just a snapshot. That means there's good soldiers and there's bad soldiers, right? We can't control what happens. It's just unfortunately, Fort Hood just has this heightened, and plus I'll be honest with you, you know, I've been stationed in San Antonio a couple times, right? So I lived, I love, my wife's from San Antonio. We love San Antonio, right? But San Antonio is a metropolitan city. It's got over a million people in the city. Bob, it's really big, right? So you can get lost as a soldier in San Antonio because you're not the center of attention in San Antonio. Fort Sam Houston is not like Fort Hood, Texas. 
Like when you come to live, when you come to clean Texas or this area, and you, the only thing people talk about is Fort Hood. But when you're in San Antonio, they talk about the Riverwalk, they talk about da 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 da. And Fort Sam's is secondary thought because it's a training installation too. It's not a real base. It's training. So it's not like an op temple where guys are deploying to Iraq. That's the thing too. Go to any base where there's deployments, where guys go to Iraq or Afghanistan and come home after a year, and they have anger issues and PTSD and all that. Of course, there's going to be problems here because at Fort Sam, you don't have that problem. Why? Because you don't deploy from Fort Sam and come back. You're there to train and get an MOS and get a job, and then you go to a unit, and then that unit deploys you. So Fort Sam is never going to have the problems that Fort Hood has because it's a training installation. It's not a base. It's not like here. It's not. It's not the same entity. So I tell people that all the time too. Fort Sam's a beautiful base. It's a wonderful place. I love San Antonio to death. I love it to death. But it's not a military town because it's both bases there, Lackman and and San Antonio and the Fort Sam are training installations. They're yeah. not active duty bases where soldiers are deploying all over the world and coming home. Well, and, and they they truly it truly is you know like you were just saying it's a secondary if not tertiary thought because we got yeah. we got Fort Sam, we got the Bamsey campus, we have Lackland. Boot camp and Lackland Base and Randolph. You got Kelly, and Kelly Air Force Base used to be there too, and they still have Kelly there, just not a base anymore, but they still yeah. have it there. So it was a military town, but not. But it's not a military installational town. Yeah. It's not a, a deployment town. It's a. It's yeah. They said, and here's the other beautiful thing for San Antonio is the lucky thing is the Bamsey. All the injured injured soldiers from all over the country would end up coming to Bamsey because of the medical hub there. So San Antonio gets all the oh they're taking care of all these wounded heroes and wounded warriors. That's why wounded warriors big in San Antonio because. Wounded Warriors come to San Antonio. Yeah. Wounded Warriors don't come to Fort Hood and Darnell. They send them to Fort Sam and Bamsey because they got better, better specialists there, better doctors there, because it's a, it's a mecca of hospital stuff there versus here. So, yeah, yeah it's crazy. So uh, let's talk about your transition out of the military. So okay. you do your retirement. Um, did you go full on ceremony or did you just kind of fade away? I was getting my flag in, my DD-214, see ya. Yeah, I was like, yep, I'm done. It, it's amazing. They, they offer, they, at, Fort, at Fort Hood, they offer a ceremony for all retirees once a month. They have a thing where you can go and they do the whole thing and the general. I'm like, nope, it, it's voluntary. You don't have to do it. I said, nope, just go get my DD-214 and my flag and I'm out of here. That's what I did. So, yeah, it, it's amazing growing up around uh, some military people. Remember my parents going to Air Force retirements and... Uh, it's funny now I do go to the retirement ceremonies on base because I'm, I'm a nonprofit that helps soldier medicine. So now they invite me to come so I can be there to support it. So I go, yeah. but I never been to one until I started going as a civilian. So. But it's funny how many, um, like I was, I re was medically retired as a chief petty officer. So an E7 also, yep. and how many of my fellow chiefs are foregoing retirement? I'd say almost quarter to half of them. And, it's something you always remember as a junior sailor going to someone's retirement. And and now it's like so many people are just done with the military at this point in time. Give me, give me my DD-214 and yeah, I mean. Let me out. Yeah. I'm done. Give me out here. Yeah. So now you get out. You stay in the Colleen area. Yep. Did you have a plan immediately set or did you take some time to yourself and. No, me and my wife kind of had a plan. Our first thought was we we're going to go to San Antonio because my wife's from there and I loved it there. So I think, okay. But then we looked at it. Our kids are doing so good in school here. We're like, we don't want to keep PCSing and moving these kids anymore. So we'll just put some roof in here and we'll see what happens. So we got two, we got one already graduated high school. My other daughter's a, a sophomore. My other daughter's a freshman and my youngest son's in fifth or fourth grade now. So my wife and I just said, hey, we'll just stay here until they finish school. And after they finish school, we can decide what we want to do after they're all the kids are gone out of the house, we can move. 
So we get give them some continuity, and, and that way they got some continuity in their lives. So we decided to put roots in here. And plus, I was established here. I've been here for at that point. I've been here for five years. When I retired, I was here in 2005. I retired in 2010. And I said, Yeah, yeah, there's potential here. I can get a job because Fort Hood's right here. I get a job off post or whatever. Blah blah. And I did. I got a job working at. A, I my first duty. My first job when I got out was a. I was a drill instructor at a juvenile detention center. So I was helping basically teenage youth who were in a bad way. I was helping them get their minds straight and smoking their ass and making them do push-up sit while they're misbehaving and stuff and kind of get their mind right. I did that for about a year, a year, excuse me. And then I started working for a hospital as a military liaison between them and the hospital. So when a military patient came in, I was the guy who went to the base and kind of updated the hospital on what's going on with soldier, blah, blah, blah. And they were paying me really good, but I was just like, I'm, yeah. I wasn't doing good with bosses in the civilian sector at all. And I thought, this ain't working, so I can't do this anymore. So I just said, I'm going to do something different. So I stopped and I started my own nonprofit and just said, I'm going to be my own boss and I'm going to help take care of soldiers and veterans in my own way and make sure their families are squared away. And that's what I'm going to do. So that's kind of where I went. So I noticed on your Facebook page when uh, we were first talking, you have a laundry list of things that you've founded or that you run. Um, I am a firm believer that a lot of veterans, especially senior enlisted E6 and above, are better suited to do their own thing than try to get into busy work or corporate work. I am 100% behind you. I think we're set up to be we're set up to be founders or owners of businesses because we have the mindset, we have the training, we have the ability to organize and do the things we got to do to make it happen. So I think you're right. Uh, I think there's some guys out there probably that aren't built to work just because they kind of got it, you know, they kind of fluffed through the system and kind of got their promotion. They didn't really deserve it, kind of, so to speak, but they got it, which was good for them. But there are a few, but most of us that were the hardcore that wanted to be in the military, that wanted that lifestyle, we're prepared for that better, I think. We're prepared to be the guy who's willing to take risks, too, because that's what it's you got to be willing to take risks. Oh, yeah. you got to be willing to take the results of those risks, and you got to be ready for that. And if you're not, you're not going to be successful, and you're going to be, then you're going to get depressed, and you're going to get angry, you know, all your other problems are going to come to fruition if you don't understand it. But yeah, I think you're right 100% that senior NCOs are built for entrepreneurship, basically. So what got you started on your first venture? Well, honestly, it was just that simple. I just didn't want to have a boss anymore. I was tired of answering to people I thought were dumber than me or they didn't have the, didn't have the ability to really lead and, and didn't know what they're doing. I worked at the guy, the people I worked for the hospital, great people. But they couldn't lead their way out of a wet paper bag in a rainstorm because they didn't know how to manage people to get the most out of them. I see in the military, one of the definitions of leadership in the military is to learn how to motivate others to accomplish the mission, right? Well, those people that I worked at the hospital, great people, fun, laugh, had a good time. But they didn't know how to motivate me to maximize my potential for them to maximize the effort that I was putting in at work. I had to do it on my own. And I was getting pissed off. Like, why do I got to be my own self-motivation? It's getting frustrating for me. I need to have some... My boss needs to be pushing me and da 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 and he's not. So I actually went to my CEO and said, hey, man, I'm going to quit. He goes, no, 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 you can't. he didn't want me to quit because I was bringing a lot of money in for them, a lot of money, because I was bringing a lot of guys to the face. Right care pays well, let's just put it that way. So he's like, what do I got to do to keep you? I said, the only way you can keep me now is you fire him and put me in that position so I'm the boss because I, I can't not be the boss over here. It's just it's, it's killing me inside because... I could make you twice as much as I'm making you now if I was in charge because I know how to get these guys motivated to get out there and make you money. He doesn't. He knows how to manage people, manage time, give us, but he doesn't know how to, he doesn't know how to motivate. And if you don't know how to motivate, you're not going to lead. 
So he started going off and he said, he offered me a raise. He offered me to jump me from 75,000 to 125,000. I said, no, unless I'm the boss, I'm not staying. He was going to pay me more than my boss. Oh, wow. He offered to pay his boss. The boss would make 115,000. I'll pay you 125,000 to stay. I said, no. I said, I'm making more money than him. I'm not going to work for him. <laughs> I'm making more money than you. I said, only way I can stay is if you you, you move him. In. I said, if you don't want to fire him, then the ladder will move him to another position and just put me in charge. The, soul, the, guy, the people that are in that office with me right now, and I'll take care of it, and I'll make you more money. And he didn't want to do it, so I just quit. So, um, But it was a really good job. I was helping a lot of soldiers, too, because they, they ran an inpatient mental health clinic for PTSD, so I was bringing guys from the base, and they were getting the treatment they needed to get their feet back under them so they could be successful where they were going. Um, and I had really great doctors there, too. They were great doctors and great nurses, but... The leadership of the hospital was just weak. I couldn't do it anymore. So I said, all right, I got to go. So did that uh, did that lead you into your nonprofit, or did that lead you yep. into uh, for-profit? Yeah, yeah, my next step after that was the nonprofit because I wanted it. I'm one of those guys that like to say that whole cliche thing of pay it forward, right? So I got out of the military, but I'm right here at Fort Hood. There's 38,000 soldiers here that are struggling because they're still deploying. They're still pretty high up tempo at the time. I said, I know I can do something. And then I thought about the families because I grew up as a military family kid, right? So I knew what it was like for my dad to be gone all the time or my mom to be gone, whatever. I said, well, I want to take care of these families while these guys are deployed and gals are deployed. I want to take care of their kids and their wives and make sure their husbands, but make sure they're okay while they're deployed so they don't have to worry about it. So I said, I'm going to start a nonprofit that takes care of the day-to-day living stuff. So food, clothes, furniture, car repairs, birthday cakes, Christmas toys, backpack to school, a whole bunch of things that are going to impact these guys throughout the year that's going to help them. So I decided to start the nonprofit, so I did. And then I just named it after Fort Hood, because Fort Hood is called the Phantom Warriors. So I named us Operation Phantom Support to kind of connect us to connect us a little bit. Um, and then that's what I did. And then I spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort to, to build it out and make it where it is. And we've been going now for going on eight years here pretty soon. So, you know, we've made it through the hard part, so we're good. So what, uh, what drove you to, into becoming serial about this becoming um not just doing one thing but moving into other ventures well the honest answer is i was trying to think of ways to make money for my nonprofit. so i was trying to build other revenue sources that i didn't have to go out and ask you for a donation say hey would you donate to me i'd rather hey why don't you buy a t-shirt support some soldiers and veterans and then the profit from the t-shirt are going to go to my nonprofit. so you'll get a t-shirt and i'll make some money for my nonprofit. so that's what i did i started I have an Army Sapper store. I have a veteran support store. So there's two online stores we have that we sell T-shirts and cups and ball, all kind of crazy stuff, right? But all the sales from that come to the charity. It don't come to me. It comes to the charity, right? It comes to my nonprofit. And then I started uh, Sergeant, Rick, Sergeant Ritter Spirits, which is named after a young man that I named my thrift store after. It was a young man here at Fort Hood that passed away in a motorcycle accident. It was a friend of mine. But I started a company called Sergeant Ritter Spirits, so I make my own vodka. I have my own. I have my own liquor license. I have, I have vodka, whiskey, and bourbon, right? So I sell it to all the stores and local restaurants around here, and I make all the money I make off that comes to the charity. So all the businesses that I've started after outside of the outside of operational support, all the money I make off it after I pay my employees that work for me for them, every other profit all comes to the charity. I don't put any of it in my pocket at all. It all comes to the charity. So that's what I wanted my business to do. So that's what we're doing. So now, how does that work for people who are interested in doing nonprofits? Well, the nonprofit side is a little challenging. You got to go through. Uh, you have to create your bylaws and then send it up to the IRS. The IRS has to approve it all, and then, then you have to pay the IRS like eight hundred something dollars to get your 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 EIN number started and da da da. 
I hired a law, a law firm to do mine. So I paid them like 1600 bucks. They did everything, but wrote the, wrote the bylaws, submitted everything for me. All I did was in a bright, I checked the IRS for 800 bucks. Then I got everything and I was done. There's different ways to do it, but you can do it on your own if you want to do it on your own, but um, it's a little bit more challenging, but yeah, but it, it's, it's hard. But then, and then you have to learn the ins and outs of the whole process of how, like, like I'm saying, like when I started my arm, cause I was a sapper in the army. I went to sapper school, got a sapper tab, so I'm tab. So I started armysapper.com because there's a lot of Rangers units out there that give like Ranger shirts and stuff. So I will, Sapper's got tabs on this. So I made my own Sapper store. And now I sell it to all the guys out there that are Sapper tabs. Da, da, da. And I, I do, I make about a thousand, a couple thousand bucks a month selling t-shirts and hats and hoodies and blah, 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 whatever. But that money all comes to the charity because I don't have to hire anybody for that job. I just had to hire somebody to help me build the website. And then I got a company next door that does all the shirts and they just get their cut and I get my cut. And their my cut just goes to the charity. So. It all works out, you know, and then I tell, like, I just talked to a young lady yesterday who saw me, heard me on another podcast and said, hey, I want to talk to you. I'm, I'm a soldier. I want to get out of the military. I want to start a nonprofit. I'd love to talk to you about it. I said, all right, give me a call. We talked yesterday for like 30 minutes. And I kind of helped her understand some of the things she's going to go through and some of the steps she's going to have to do to establish what she's doing. And I said, my number's right here. You got it. Got any more questions? Give me a call. Because I'm always looking out for my fellow brothers and sisters that are trying to do something different and make their life stronger or adventure into something new and try to help them. So that's what I do now is I kind of, I'm like, I kind of like to call myself a business coach that doesn't charge. Cause I don't charge anybody for any kind of advice. I just taught you and like, I try to give you advice and, and ideas to help you get to where you want to get to. And hopefully you're successful. That's what we go for. So I, I know you mainly because our mutual friend, Joe Palacios with Maxwell soaps talks about sure. doing stuff. How did you get into the combat boxes? Well, that, that's funny you ask, because that was another thing. I'm, I'm in the Vetrepreneur Tribe and stuff on Facebook, and then I'm in the Warrior Council, and, I'm, and I do a lot of things with those guys and the, and, the, and the guys are running. And I'm sitting there going, man, there's a lot of us in this tribe that have products, but we have a lot of these guys have trouble selling their products, right? Because they don't they don't know how to market right, or they, they, got, they got challenges. Branding and marketing is really difficult, right? And especially in these times of social media and all this other stuff. I said, you know what? My wife gets it. And the funny thing, my wife and my daughters all get these subscription makeup service boxes that come to the house every month. They get some of them times they get little box, sometimes they get big box, but they get a box every month. I pay like 20 bucks a kid, you know, 20 bucks a person. So 60, 80 bucks a month. And my, all my wife and my two daughters get a box and it comes with different type of makeup in it every month. I'm like, and then one day I'm going, you know, I want to do some research to see if there's any veteran owned businesses that have combat or that have subscription box services. Then I went to a few and I didn't see any. And I said, now some like Maxwell Soaps. I don't know if you know Joe, but Joe and yeah. I have talked a lot. I've been trying to coach Joe for a long time. And Joe's Joe moves at his own pace and distance. So you got to be patient with Joe. But I said, hey, Joe, I talked to him. I said, hey, man, I got you in Maxwell Soaps. I want to put you in my, I'm going to start a company called Combat Box because I want to start promoting veteran, veteran products in a subscription box that I can promote your product in this box that somebody's going to get from me. And then I'm going to go to your website and buy your stuff. And we can put coupon codes in there, all kinds of stuff for you to drive people to your website. And I want to help you. What do you think of the idea? He said, I think it's a great idea. I said, okay, good. I said, you should start a subscription service for your own soap anyway, blah, blah. So we talked about that. Then he made, I had to make me soap. He made me these little grenade soaps. I actually have some up here, I think, somewhere. But they're called boom soaps. They're just like little hand size. They're like this. They're like six inches high, but they're grenade. They fit perfect in your hands. They'll wash them and stuff like that. Yeah, Joe, Joe's actually, yeah, Joe yeah. showed me pictures because I'm, I'm technically part of Maxwell's soaps, kind of, but oh, yeah, yeah, stay yeah. way out of the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joe's Joe's awesome. He's doing the best he can, and like I told him before. But but the concept of what I came up with is I just don't see anything out there that helps promote veteran products. So I, I said, you know what? I can do this. It's not that hard. You know what I'm saying? 
all I got to do is get some vendors, some veteran-owned business that are willing to become vendors for me, and then there's going to be a little bit of you know, a buy-in from them, and then da-da-da-da. And then I can start it, and I did. And I started it back in November of last year, and I've, now it's July, and I'm still sending out boxes every month. Now, I'm not where I want to be in boxes, but I can't put a lot of time into that because I got so much other stuff going on. But I'm getting ready to hire somebody to just run combat boxes. Now that I've got it kind of running and going, now they can come in and kind of pick it up and, and go with it and make money off it, you know, get paid on how many boxes they get, how many subscriptions they get. Um, and we, re we revamped the website a couple of times to make it a little easier to, to order and stuff. But um, it's 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 fun because I can help a lot of businesses out, a lot of veteran brothers and sisters that have business that product that might not be in having the sales levels they want. But now I buy some from them. That's what I'm doing. I buy from them. I buy from them at cost, though. I don't. They don't make profit off of me, but I buy from them so I can get in the box so that people can see it. And if they like it, they'll go on their website and order it and get some more of it. And do like the, I got a guy that sells beef jerky. And his jerky's really good. And when you taste it, you're like, damn, it's pretty good. And then he gives a coupon. You go in there and he gets a coupon in the box. So you go, oh, yeah, there's a website. And he's got orders from it. He's got thousands of dollars in orders from my boxes because people go on there and use the code that shows his combat boxes. So he knows how many people from combat boxes actually order his, his jerky. So it's working, you know. It's what's Mike's crazy jerky. And he's really good. He's got a he's got a goat pepper one in it. It's really good. So, yeah. But, um. But it, it's successful in the sense that I'm helping to get other veteran businesses out there in the market and getting them an opportunity to get seen by people that might not ever saw them before. So it gives them an opportunity. So what do you think about these, um, are, whether they're helping or taking away from the community, some of these higher profile um, veterans companies that now are really making uh, the media. I can think of a few like Black Rifle Coffee. They recently got in a kerfuffle here in town over some political stuff. Yeah, well, I know. I know those guys. Um, the problem with all those guys is like, it's just like grunt style. And it's just, when you get that big, you forget where you came from. Because now you're just focused on the money. You're not focused on the mission anymore. You're not focused on it. You're looking at the money now. And that's what I tell you, even like me with my business, if they ever get to that point where it gets to that point where I'm thinking about the money before I'm thinking about anything else, then I'm, then I'm done with that business. I'm going to move on. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to do something because I don't want that in my life. Um, now, a lot of these guys have progressed, say that they don't do that, but they're full of shit because if you're going to open up a Black Rifle Coffee Company in, in San Antonio, right, they, they just open a really nice one down there, right, really beautiful, like a whole bunch like a Starbucks, but it's Black Rifle Coffee kind of thing. And I'm, I'm very happy for the guy. I hope he's very successful. I want to. He's a veteran. He's a special guy. Guys, go, go do your thing. But see, I've actually reached out to them a few times for my nonprofit, asking for support or would they really want to do anything with me. I even asked him to, hey, I have my own coffee coming too. It's called Combat Coffee, Coffee for Heroes, right? I said, hey, would you guys be willing to carry my brand and help me sell my brand through yours and we can just split the profit or you can get 70. I'll take 30% of it. I don't care because it's not that difficult for me. I'm not looking to make a lot of money off. I'm just trying to get my brand out there. And they never reach back to you. They never talk to you. You can't call them. You, can't, you know what I'm saying? So there's, they become untouchable almost. So it's, it almost defeats the purpose to promote yourself that way if you're not reachable. And that's one of my things is I'm, all, I'm always reachable. People can call, email me, call me anytime, and I answer them. You know, I never turn anybody away who calls me. And I think our society of veterans need to be more adept to the needs of fellow veterans to support them, to help them be successful. I'm not asking you to give, like, I would never call you and ask you to give me money. But I might call you and say, hey, man, how's your podcast coming? Can you help me with this? I have a podcast too, blah, blah, blah. And me and you could talk and you mean you could collaborate. And then, you know what I'm saying? And then I, you can help me strengthen my pro, non -pro, my podcast. And I might be able to do something for you by getting you some more guests. Like I could get you Sergeant Major Tilly. I can get you guys Sergeant Major of the Army, a, a retired Tilly. He was, I was just on his podcast. He's going to be on my podcast. But now I can get him on your podcast. You see what I'm saying? So 
it's about supporting each other. It's about making each other successful. And I think a lot of guys forget that when they start getting the money gets in their way. The money makes them see gray, green, you know what I'm saying? So they start seeing things different. Well, I do feel like um, on that note, you seem to have started from a completely different point than a lot of some of these bigger name veterans companies where your intention was you had a nonprofit. You didn't like asking people for money. So instead of doing that, you did something that, as far as I know, is rather unique. And I'm going to build other smaller businesses to feed the nonprofit. So it's not necessarily about expanding the business as much as it is maximizing what can go into the nonprofit, if I'm reading that right. It is. And that's exactly what it was. I came up with the idea that, hey, I still ask people for money because it's still part of the job as a nonprofit, but I don't do it as frequently anymore. I don't do it because now I'm like, okay, I just need to push this store. I need to push this item get them to buy it, and then I'm getting the support I need because even it might not be as much as a $50 donation because I only make $15 off that T-shirt sale or whatever, but it's still $15, and that person got something nice out of it. So there's a there's a to and from versus just give me money because uh, you support what I do. That's nice, and some people do that, and that's great, and I love that. But I know a lot of people out there want some satisfaction in too by getting a T-shirt or getting a towel or getting a blanket or a coin or something. They want something, so you got to make the effort to – give people options to do something to help support you. And I'm just trying to get more options to support me. You know what I mean? Hey, buy a t-shirt that supports me too. So just go to my store and buy a t-shirt then if you don't want to give me 20 bucks, go buy a t-shirt. Yeah, no, I totally feel you on that. I also know um, I was one of those guys that was brought to San Antonio for uh, the Navy version of the WTU. And I can tell you there, the level of nonprofits that actually are truly trying to be helpful and don't get corrupted by the the media thing that happens to them at some point in time is incredible. Cause there are so many good nonprofits here locally that got swallowed because soldiers angels was here and no, no disrespect to Patty. She is a wonderful woman, but there got to a point when there were some hands in that business that was more concerned with media than there was, Unfortunately, a guy like you know, Wounded Warrior Project that had all that corruption and all that stuff. Not only that, but it hurts us, smaller veteran-based nonprofits, because then everybody thinks you're doing the same thing, and it's not. It's not true. You know, and I tell people all the time, I don't care what who you are. If you come off the street and you want to see my books, I'll take you upstairs and show them to you. I'm not hiding shit. I don't hide shit from anybody. I don't pay myself for a reason, so that people can see that hey, I'm, when I'm asking you for money, it's to support my mission, not me. And not, none of that money is going to go in my pocket. Not as not a penny, because I don't pay myself here. I have my retirement, my disability, and then I have other businesses that I have that help make me money for me and my family. And my wife has a business and da, da, da. So we're fine. I'm not trying to be rich. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to be happy in my life and be successful in the things I do and to help the people I want to help, which are soldiers, veterans, and first responders and their families. And that's what I want to do. And if that's where my mission is, that's where I'll always be. So. Well, you know, I want to say thank you for everything um, that you're doing with your current nonprofit, especially on the mental health side, because I don't think families uh, get the attention they need, especially another thing that people don't realize is those people who didn't retire, who may have been in my situation and found unfit, but not at a high enough rate to retire, they get their VA disability. That doesn't do anything for their family. They, the VA doesn't offer any mental health for family members. Yeah, it boggles my mind that the VA doesn't even allow us as veterans to say, hey, how, does, how do we get our family members or our wives or kids medical? Because, like, I'm retired, so my wife is good. She's got TRICARE. I have TRICARE. My son 
and daughter has to care because they're still young. But why doesn't the VA offer me to pay $100 a month for me to have medical coverage for my wife why, or my kids or whatever? Because there's a lot of veterans like you who got medically discharged. Now, you're medically discharged, so you should have a blue ID card, too, because they're medically separate. But there's guys that get pushed out of the Army and then have to only have their VA. And the VA only takes care of them, not any of their spouse, their spouse or their kids. And why the VA doesn't allow us to decide, hey, take $50, $100 out a month out of my VA check and let me have some medical coverage for my spouse. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I can't get a job that pays medical because I can't work for a job because my VA disability and my disability doesn't let me have a job like that. I can't have a job that's got full benefits because I can't have a job. So there's things that the VA needs to look at. I know I've been talking to Congressman Williams and some of these other guys right here, Park Buckley and these guys about, it's not that the VA doesn't try to do their best, but the VA also needs to be held accountable for the things they should be, should be taken care of, which is the veteran's family too, because what happens? Right? Some of us are 100% disabled and can't have a job. Exactly. Yeah, they pay us $2,000 a month, but I'd rather give up $1,000 of that for my wife and kids to have coverage that they have medical treatment. They can get medical treatment versus the extra 1000 bucks. I can live with 2000 Just here, take 1000 then. Let my mom and let my wife and kids have medical from the VA even. So I think there's work that can be done. There should be an option for veterans to be able to pay for coverage for their families, just like they do in the, in the military. Like when you know we sign up and we pay that little medical fee out of our check every month so our wife and kids can have medical. So. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing that that's uh, overlooked. I mean, so many small things, but that's neither here nor there. What I do. I tell everybody this too. The military doesn't hire your wife and kids. They hire you. Yeah. I I have a a conversation like that all the time about pay, like your pay. They're paying for one single E5 to live. They're not paying for one single E5, his wife and two kids. The army, the military pays you enough to take care of you. Yeah. And VAH and separate all that when you get married, but that's not enough to take care of three other people. That's enough to help, but it's not going to take care of it. You know? Well, it's like one of the things I remind people who are coming up on their 20 who haven't done any planning, which is you may have a whole bunch, especially at the Navy, we, there, we have special pays for everything. So you may have all these special duty pays, but you're getting 50% of your base pay. Yeah. If, if you're living like if you're living in LA right now and you're an E6 married, you're probably making about $3,500 a month in BAH on top of all your pay. So you could an E6 in LA right now with their BAH could easily who's married could easily be making close to seven or eight grand a month. When you hit 20, you're not getting four grand a month. You're getting like maybe two grand a month. Well, listen, my dad retired as a CW3 in the U.S. Navy, 20 years in service. His retirement check was like $2,200 a month. And his base pay when he was in the Navy was like almost 5000 Yeah. And right? people so don't. I have taxes and all that stuff, that, like my pay. I get like $1,700 a month from the Army after 20 years because I was making about $3,000, a little over like $4,000 a month. Yeah. Now I get $1,700. And then my VA check is 90%, so I get like twenty. So I make a little bit less than what I made when I was in the army, but that's all right because I have two checks coming in because I retired at 20 years and I get my VA, so I get both. Yeah. But some guys don't get both. Like you guys, like you, they get medically retired. You only get whichever one's higher. Your medical retirement percentage based on the Navy or the Army or your VA, depending on which one's higher. And then you can apply for CRSC and all that other stuff if you qualify, and then you can get that. But, you know, it, the government doesn't set this up to be – I think the retirement system is really actually pretty good for the military. I think it's nice to know when I was 39, I had a retirement check for the rest of my life forever. Like, That's nice. But it's not a ton of money. It's enough. You know, it pays my mortgage and pays a, like one bill. Then I'm good. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> yeah. 
that helps, but it's not everything. So, yeah. So I, I don't know if you were exposed to the new retirement system at all, um, where that's, it's not the same as when you and yeah, I were in. They've changed this entire time. I think it started, I think it went into effect like four or five years after I got out the way they're doing it now. Yeah. And I, I, I can't talk to it at all. I just know it's not the same, but where I was going to go with that is, so you obviously are still talking with, uh, active duty, uh, soldiers. Oh, yeah, every day, every day. What do you say to guys who show an interest in either starting a nonprofit or getting into the entrepreneurial world who are at 16, 17, 18 years in, do you encourage them to start now? Or do you? I encourage a lot of research. I talk to them about look at other businesses or like the model of what you want to do. For instance, I, I just, in my nonprofit, I just started a program called Veterans to Employment, where I help veterans or soldiers or their spouses who want to start a franchise, right? A franchise, an established business that's going to be successful because it's already been established and it's already running. Basically, no cost to them. They got to come in, work at the franchise for me for a couple of years, and then they earn it through sweat equity. I, I basically give them 60% of the company after they've worked for me for a couple of years and show me they can run it. They got it under control. And then I give them 60% of it, and I fall back into the investment group, which owns the other 40%. But they're the primary owner because they're 60% owners now. So they're the owner. And all we are is an investment group behind them. But there's no cost out of pocket. So it's you know this might be a $250, $1,000 buy-in franchise that I put you in, but it doesn't cost you anything except sweat equity, meaning you're going to work for me as a manager, general manager, and you're going to run it making 30 or $40 an hour while I'm paying you to run it. So you're going to make really good money. And then if you decide you want to own it and we've paid off the loans and all stuff that I took out on it based on how the business does, then I hand you 60% of it and I step away and you own it. So I have a lot of guys coming and talking to me about that right now. And I tell them, listen, it's not as easy. I'm going through it right now because I'm setting up a franchise right now called Axe Monkey right here in Colleen outside the gates of Fort Hood. And it's an axe throwing venue for like families to come and throw axes at targets and have a good time. And there's a rage room to go break shit and smash cars and all kinds of stuff, right? It's going to be fun. It's going to have, a, it's going to make good money. It's going to do really well. But the headache that I've gone through dealing with these people and trying to get to draw all those checks to the boxes and all it's, it's mind numbing, you know, it's mind numbing. So it takes a lot of resilience in who you are as a person to kind of bite your tongue as a soldier too and go like today I was going through all the invoices and I noticed that one invoice has a certain price. The other invoice has a different price. Like, why are they charging me this much on this one and then this much on this invoice? And why is there a difference? They're the same exact items. So, you know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm like, what the? So so there's frustrations in all this. So I tell every entrepreneur that goes in there, I don't care if you have the greatest idea in the world. If you don't research this a little bit, figure out what it's going to cost you to start up, what it's going to cost you to run it, what it's going to cost you to maintain it, you're not going to be successful. Because you have the best idea in the world. But what is it going to cost you? There's nothing in the world is free. It's going to cost you time. going to cost you money. It's going to cost you sweat. It's going to cost you blood. What's it going to cost you? And then if it's worth that sacrifice, then go after it and I'll help. And I'll even help you. I'll step on board and help you because I like doing that stuff. I like making veterans and soldiers successful. So, uh, but I tell them all the time, it's a hard life because you, like my wife will tell you right now, she's in the other room right now. She's in here. She worked for me and she helped me out at a, but I'm here a lot. I'm, I'm at this, the charity's only open Wednesday through Saturday, but I'm here Monday through Saturday. The only day I get off is Sunday, right? I'm here Monday, eight o'clock in the morning until five o'clock. And then I'm here and all the way through Saturday, same day, every day. I put 60, 80 hours a week into this place because it's that important to me. And I want to make sure we're successful. I want to we're closed Monday to Tuesdays, but I'm here today. I'm here all day. I'm at work right now. 
because I've been here and I've been here all morning because there's just stuff that's got to get done. So there's a lot of sacrifice you make as an entrepreneur because your time is valued into your company's value later on. So that's what I tell them. That's why the sweat equity is so important because the time you're putting in that you're not paying yourself, that's where the money really meets the road where you're coming in because now you know you've really earned that business and that title as the owner because you're putting in the equity. So Yeah. So now um, to close it up, last year yep. was the word shit show uh, doesn't do last year justice. No, that was a fuck Fuck farm. I, I like that word. I'm stealing it from you. Fuck farm. Yeah, yeah the fuck farm was not fun here. So how much did that impact you, uh, both mentally and for the for being an entrepreneur? Met, probably more dramatically mentally, because I was so defeated mentally because of the frustrations of the, the rules that were coming down for people that shouldn't really be dictating those type of rules. I mean, I if I want to open my business and I want to risk catching COVID, that's on me, not on you. You don't get to decide that shit for me. I fought for this country and I bled and da-da. You don't get to do that. You know what I mean? And that was frustrating and mentally exhausting for me because I'm like, who do you people think you are? I got it all safety and all that. You can give me all the safety advice you want, but to tell me I can't open my business, fuck you, that's my business. If I want to risk it, I'll risk it because I have a family to feed. I have a family to take care of. You know, Are you putting checks in my, are you going to deposit checks in my account or something or on the balance of what else we'll be making? So it was very heart-wrenching and very emotionally and mentally de depleting because I'm a firm believer in all of us have choices. For instance, even here at the charity, like right now the charity, because COVID is kind of whatever, now we got this new Delta virus, blah, blah, blah. So I tell people all the time, we're asking you to wear masks when you come in just because of safety precaution. I'm not telling you have to, but we're asking you to do it out of safety and respect for each other, right? And like for me, my new business, the accident thing, all my employees are going to be, I'm, I'm not going to mandate it. I'm vaccinated. I got vaccinated because I was a medic and I know whether it's a trial vaccination or not, I'm getting vaccinated because at least there's an effort to try to do something to keep the shit from killing me. So I'm going to say, so I got vaccinated. So like, for instance, when I start hiring people in my business, the actual business, I'm going to give an incentive for those employees that I hire to get the vaccination. If they don't want them, that's your choice. But if you do get it, I'm going to give you a $250 bonus in your paycheck because it means you're safer working for me because now you're safer for my employees and our guests. But I'm not mandating it. I'm just telling you, if you do it, here's the incentive for you if you do it. So can if I, you don't do it, you wear your mask. Yeah. Can I get $750 if I go get all three of them? All three what? The, fi three the Moderna, the Pfizer, and then the, uh, uh, no, the Johnson you, Johnson. Good try, though. Good try. <laughs> no, it'll be you get vaccinated and you're completely like me. I have my little card in my wallet. Pull it out. You're good. But I'm going to incentivize my employees. I'm not going to mandate it. I'm just saying, look, if you want to do it, great. If you don't, I understand. You don't have to. But if you do it, I'm going to give you a bonus because that shows me you're putting in the effort for my business to protect yourself and our customers. So I'm going to incentivize you. Because I incentivize my employees anyway. Like all my employees are going to, like the ones at that business, anything they sell, they get 20% commission on anything they sell. Any merchandise they sell, they get 20% commission. So they help me push the stuff out the door. So I'm making more money. So they're making more money. But I'm that type of person. But yeah, from the whole point of the, the, the fuck farm was, um, you know, having that mandated down to us and then pushing things out. And then I'm one of these type of people that I don't watch the news because the news has been built now to just put fear in people so that people are addicted to watching it. So they're afraid and they want to get answers. So they, they use fear. And to me, fear is the most dangerous and most poisonous thing you can use in, in a conversation with people is try to scare them into doing something. And, and when you try to scare people into doing something, you don't get the result you want because they're not going to give you the effort that they need to give to give you the right results. They're just going to hurry up and do it. And they're going to, they're going to screw it up. So, um, cause I know I've talked to Congressman Williams and I've talked to Congress, uh, Senator Buckley and all these guys about it. And I said, listen, man, 
you guys got to get control of these, these these TV stations and all these people that own these TV and they're doing all this horrible shit on TV because their newscast, like even for instance, I, I like to use this example, like the whole George Floyd thing. I don't think that cop was right for keeping his his knee on the guy's neck for nine minutes. I think they could have got him under control, hog tied him, and did whatever, and he could have got off him. I mean, to me personally, that's my personal opinion. They could have done it a little different and made it safer, and he probably wouldn't have died, and we we wouldn't be in this shit form as we're in now. And I also think cops to be held accountable for decisions they make and things they do because that's what their job is. I don't think he intended to kill the guy. I think it happened, but it was one of those things. But that whole thing that started happening because of that with George Floyd and how the Black Lives Matter and all this stuff comes up, and you're like, now we're seeing all this racist shit on TV. Even on Netflix, you go to Netflix now, it says black movies or black whatever. And I'm like, where, where does it want to say white? Where does it want to say Hispanic? Where does it want to say or Latin or whatever? Why are we saying that all of a sudden this is more important than everybody else in the world? Because this more white people get killed by cops every year than black people. It's been statistically that way for the last 20 years. Do black people get killed by cops? Yes. Do white people get killed by cops? Yes. Do Hispanic people get killed by cops? Everybody, every race gets killed by the cops because they're dumb and they're doing stupid shit and they get shot at because they're doing wrong. Some, it's probably not, and the cops are bad cops. But again, cops are 10% of the population too. There's 10% of the cops out there that are bad cops. The other 90% great cops, good guys. We want to do the good guys and gals. But 10% are shit bags. That's just the way the world is. If people could just come to grips with that, the world would be a better place. But this whole thing has, has just escalated and made our country look at each other in such a different way that it's scary to me. You know, I fought for this country for 20 years and bled and sweat and because I believe in what we stand for as a country. Are we perfect? By God means no. Are there racists in this country? Of course there are. Are there politically Because uh, I'm one of, I'm, and not to really digress, but I'm one of these people that don't believe there should be any parties in politics. There should be no politicians. There should be no Democrats or Republicans. You should run as an American and you want to do the best for your community. That's why you should be running. It shouldn't matter what you believe. It should be you're telling me what you believe. So I either believe that with you and I vote for you or I don't. But I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or independent or what. Just run as an American and just be an American and try to do the best for our country and our or your community or your city. So I can digress into a whole lot of things, but yeah, man, it that that whole last year was just and like even for me for the charity, because a lot of families, a lot of spouses lost their jobs because of COVID because of everything that happened, and then they stopped their donation to me, you know, to us because they wanted to save that twenty bucks every month instead of giving it to us. They they felt maybe they needed it more. But by that, I'm down 67% of my donors from a year ago. I had almost 2,000 donors. Now I'm down to like 800. Wow. So our numbers have skewed so far left. And even right now, even though, like, say, for instance, CBS came in and did this wonderful thing for us on national news, and we raised a shit ton of money in like three or four days, right? But that didn't change the fact that the donations, the regular monthly donations that I had are still not at the number they need to be at for us to maintain. That money was great. It helped us get through a whole lot of stuff. It helped us get through the rest of COVID. But now we're down to like only like only like twenty thousand dollars left of that money, and then we're going to be back down to where we were, and we might not make it another six months after that because the money that was donated was miraculous. But you know, it gets to a point where you just say you're going to go through the money because money's got to be spent. So it's where it goes. Well, do you think? Um, I'm trying to phrase this without sounding like I want the war to continue because I don't. Do you think that the end of Afghanistan? is going to change how people see veterans nonprofits. I don't know if it'll change the way they see veterans nonprofits. I think it'll change the way they look at our country because I think leaving Afghanistan is a mistake from the standpoint of even just the 
strategical location and having a force in that region of the, in the world assist our country because now we could deploy people from there if we had to to where Iran or wherever other crazy place Syria having us there made sense I think we should have made an agreement with Afghanistan that we put a base there we should have had a military like we did in Germany we, we should have a base there and we're just there to help them we're not going to be patrolling and doing all that shit anymore but we're there you know to I think we made a mistake but that's just me because um, I'm one of those guys that have been in the military for every time we went to war or did some kind of conflict we took over we should have stuck a flag in the ground and said, guess what? This is a military U.S. territory now. <laughs> you know, we own this bitch now. You know what I'm saying? Good luck. You know, you're going to fall under our rule now. But, um, yeah, I think it was a mistake. I don't know because I think nowadays a lot, you know, probably 60% of the population understand what soldiers go through because they under, they've done a little bit of research and what, what, what we really do. There's 40% of people out there that are just idiots and they don't know and don't care because they're selfish and they're pricks and they think that the world is giving to them on a spoon and whatever. But there are people out there that I think will continue to respect. I know that's why I love living in Texas, because I know I ain't got to worry about it here. You say you're a veteran here, and they love you, they take care of you, they take care. That's why I'll never leave Texas. You know what I'm saying? I'm not even, I wasn't even born here, but both my kids were born here. So, I mean, I consider myself a Texan now because my kids are born here. I'm staying, I'm not going nowhere. And this state loves veterans. You know, they love soldiers and veterans. So I'm not going anywhere. And I'm, you know, I'm definitely not going to California ever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Good hey, thing. I was born there. I I, I resemble yeah, my that brother, California. My brother was born there too. I mean, California is beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but they got they got a lot of idiots running that state too. So yeah. Yeah, I just think that uh, when you get up to those levels, uh, that power corrupts. I mean, I've I've had several friends that were super good E fives, E sixes, and they get they get a little bit of the power by as a senior chief, so an E eight, and they turn yep. into shitbag leaders at E nine. So the front of the bottom yeah, E8. Yeah. I want to respect your time. We've been doing this for an hour and a half. And I yeah. want to say thank you for coming on, Nick. It sure. means a lot. Appreciate you having me on Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, the Modern Ronin, on Twitter at Tommy Chase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it'd be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.